0: Honestly. There's nothing there except for like lobsters and shit. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's
1: nice and quiet. I like this. It's very nice. We're live. Fancy.
2: Quiet wow, we dead. only have like half the people than we did last time. Probably because RSA is going on right now. More important people are doing stuff right now. Oh, yeah. It's just us peasants, I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Welcome to the Thug Crowd Podcast. This is episode 5. We're talking about hackers versus the media. So, uh, can everybody see who is on? Yes. All right. Yes. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? No.
2: Well, Jonathan doesn't, but I'll go ahead and do it, I guess. Hi, I'm If Not Pike, also known as Not Pike or Pike. I am the radio nut, and also green dog.
4: I'm uh, Jada Packet Smith, and I make uh, movies about sending uh, uh, illegal packets to people.
1: I'm Jonathan. I'm just a skid.
5: Crow. Crow. Oh. Rip. I don't think he's. I think he's. Crow bait. Yeah, he's muted. Oh. All right, we can go Cal. Oh, uh, hi. Uh, I'm Cal, and uh, I'm gay. I don't know. Hi, Cal. Nice to meet you, Cal. (laughs) Very nice. Hey, I am MG. What's up? I'm Nux. Faith. That's Nux. This is Faith.
6: I saw it. Oh, hi. Uh, I'm Solid. I'm uh, an, an independent security researcher, I guess.
3: And I'm you. I'm host of this here podcast.
6: Keck Zodiac.
3: The one and only. <laughs> <the official. laughs> he uh, hacks billboards
1: in his free time.
0: This is the real one, guys. Don't listen to the other fakers on Twitter. This is the real
6: one. <laughs>
3: Well, we sure sure cleared up that controversy. though um, so we
1: should get Zodiac makes every billboard BSOD when he looks at it. <laughs>
3: um, so we have a special episode tonight. We have a interview with uh, Joseph Cox from Vice Motherboard to talk about yeah, that. hackers and the media. And so we'll be playing that um, after we go through the news. And then we might have some other special guests pop in here and there, so keep a lookout. And as always, you can hit us up in the Twitch chat, or you can come to IRC, or you can come to our Discord if you have the link. Most of that stuff is on thugcrowd.com or capital I, YNcomey.com. Um <laughs> So let's get into the news. Uh, <laughs> the first one that we have, we're actually talking about this a little before, was the Drupal um PFC was finally released. So I'll post that in the chat here. So you guys have, any, have anything to say about DrupalGedon and the whole uh quest for POC that was happening for quite some time?
6: I feel pathetic. It took me like it took that long for it to come out.
4: <laughs> yeah, I think um yeah. I mentioned this when we were talking earlier, but that the, the any time that you type the word "aval" into your code base ever, like you should really consider your life choices. <laughs> So um, do we want to talk about uh, how it works, what it is?
6: Yeah, if you want to go
4: get into it, we're,
3: we're kind of we're yeah. talking a bit more about it than we usually do, so I'd say so. so do you have any um, opinions
4: or ideas? So I was looking at an article earlier um, that sort of described it where uh, you're able to post uh, a bunch of parameters that would then get rendered later in a template, including what appears to be the the signup form. Um, And there was a section where you could post, uh, in the example they're using, they're posting an array instead of a single value. And then um, eventually that bubbles down through uh, the form uh, renderer. And eventually, once it gets to to this point, which is your form renderer, which is where it's supposed to not do evals, it does evals. Um, And yeah, it... Eventually uh, in, in certain scenarios it's able to, you're able to eval your, um, your param- the pa- parameters you've posted. So use a controlled value straight into a eval and away you go, do, do code, write the code. And um, I believe most of the exploits that are out there are for shells or for PHP info for, in, in the pox and things like that, but uh, you can, you know, there's no real end to what you could eval, I guess. The length of your uh, of your parameters. I
7: think it's pretty interesting that um, that even automated scanners couldn't pick this up. But uh, maybe we need to start just putting PHP info bracket bracket as a as a dumb fuzz string into our burp scanners because uh, this looks like something that should have really been found a long time ago with just regular injection scanning from from most popular tools from a code
4: audit perspective i feel like this should have been found with grep like um you can just grep for known things like system about whatever and follow them you know follow the code path um back there's like tools for building you know um, graphical code paths and, and stuff like that um trees and whatever but you don't really like generally right if i'm doing a, a code audit i i usually follow the path in my head from like Either malicious function or user-controlled value, um, and see if I can, you know, line them up. And in, in, in that case, and in this case, they—that's they, exactly what happens.
7: Yeah, this would have been found by shameless plug: GR audit, which is just a list of regular expressions and and shell script and grep for finding low-hanging fruit by um, ghoul GR oh, audit. Yeah. Grep audit. It's kind yeah, of like Wiggle. fine Bugs, but a bit dumber. Yeah, Waggle has been doing
4: that this. for a while. So, yeah,
7: look at that I bet, he, I bet he's known about this. He's probably kept this one in his pocket for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I even saw um, there's an article
3: posted. I'll, I'll post it in the Twitch chat here that people he had already just immediately started using it to mine Monero, of course.
4: Of I find course, that's in.
6: Everything.
4: Yeah, I find that mining scripts in browser kind of, um, <laughs> uh, I don't know, kind of a shitty use. I guess it's better than redirecting off to, um, you know, your your pornering website or whatever to try and make money. But um, I can't imagine, like, I haven't seen figures on it, but I can't imagine that random no name Drupal site gets enough traffic that um, Monero mining would be, yeah. You know, worth it.
0: Yeah, it doesn't seem very profitable.
7: It's a I mean, especially. Yeah, you, sure, you sure it was client-side mining or was it server-side mining or are they uploading like xmr stack onto the vulnerable block?
3: Um, it uh,
7: hold on, let me take a look here.
3: I believe it is I think
0: CoinHive requires to... uh validation now.
3: Yeah, I it doesn't actually the article doesn't get into whether or not it was client-side or server-side, but I mean if you can get A shell on there i mean i don't know might as well but at the same time there are certainly enough enterprises with drupal sites that you know would be able to make it feasible to have some sort of browser miner yeah i've done some um
4: consulting on scaling uh drupal joomla wordpress that kind of garbage where it constantly falls over and often the um the option i often give is you know use static caching blah 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 hit the php service less um but that's the opposite of what they choose and they choose to run more Drupal hosts and uh distribute their sql databases which is more expensive and more terrible but would be better for monero mining so
3: all right uh, let's get into the next topic, which is the TV broadcaster who wants app stores blocked to prevent <laughs> privacy. Did uh, you guys read this article? Irony.
2: <laughs> yeah, I read through it. It's interesting.
3: Yeah, so basically a Hong Kong um, broadcaster, uh, TVB, is trying to restrict access to one of the many, many, many services that offers um, basically what it equates to them as TV piracy by aggregating a bunch of different sources online to be able to watch television. And so they had tried to physically do everything they could to block certain app stores um, to prevent people from downloading it. And it's not really, it's, it's kind of one of those things that's very difficult at this point in time to actually block. I feel like it's kind of just like barking up the wrong tree at this point.
6: I would imagine that as soon as uh, the service did get blocked, we would simply migrate it to something else.
3: Yeah.
4: So uh, I scanned the article quickly and um, I read that it was Hong Kong based. Was that the service provider or is that where the pirate service was coming from?
0: No, it's a Hong Kong based uh, TV, TV company.
4: Okay. So that's pretty ironic because like over here you can go to a market and you can buy a fake apple branded usb stick that you plug into your tv that uses like whatever that like popcorn time or i don't even know that's still around but those sort of um distributed streaming services and they're like you know really cheap they're like 30 bucks and you buy it and you plug it into your tv and then that's it um so considering they're all manufactured out of china and they all you know for it to be a hong kong provider that's pretty funny
7: Yeah, well, this is the thing, um, because it's the it Australian... We'll just have to start putting our services on
2: AWS instances and see what happens.
7: The Australian government, in, in working in conjunction with major ISPs here, have already blocked streaming sites like Watch Series, Watch Cartoon, uh, and of course all the Kick-Ass Torrents, Pirate Bay, they're all blocked at a national level. So there's going to be more of these guys coming along and saying, hey you blocked blocked uh, this Game of Thrones streaming site, To, Why don't you block this? It does exactly the same thing, except for our business. So we're going to start seeing a lot more of these, I think.
4: I believe as well Australia is right up there on the piracy list because it's actually really hard to legally watch Game of Thrones. Like, I'm, I don't watch it myself, but um, it's obviously popular. Um, and... Just on that national blocking level, if you do live in Australia and you don't know anything about how the blocks work and these websites just don't work, if you use OpenDNS or Google DNS or anything, then um, you'll be able to reach everything that's blocked because their their blocking implementation is 2 out of 10 would not block.
7: They tried to make the argument in the UK that Kodi, that um, Xbox Media Center, and everything derived from that should be blocked because everybody was buying these smart TV boxes that come preloaded with Kodi and just able to watch any any channel in the world or any stream in the world. Um, and they, they've they been somewhat successful in the UK at demonizing this in
6: their, in their
7: yellow media. So I wouldn't be surprised if they start doing that here as well in Australia.
6: That's silly. Uh, I mean, it's just a matter of time before people figure out how to proxy these services and get around that.
7: Don't underestimate how much influence you know rupert murdoch has um and these these old media dinosaurs if they want something removed from the internet in the uk australia it gets removed
4: i think it's important to remember though that um majority of people who are part of the groups that provide um pirated content tv shows specifically um i can't think of any off the top of my head but you know you always see the name at the end of the like the wares group that that ripped it or whatever these people like race to see who can get the far, you know, who has the fattest pipes to push the content, who can encode it as soon as it's aired and get it out there to people. These are like dedicated people who are about that. Where's life? Um, I don't know why they do that. <laughs> I don't know what personal gain they get out of that, other than you know, EP. But um, it's definitely like Rupert Murdoch might have a lot of sway, and media people have a lot of sway, but the people who are doing this are really dedicated for some reason that I don't understand, but yeah.
3: I feel like it's because it's become such a commonplace thing too. Like a lot of people just expect this sort of thing. Now I noticed that a lot of like, um, older people and families will start using things like that. Cause it just makes sense from a financial standpoint. And then now that people are more used to being able to just stream whatever, it just seems like that's just going to be the way of it. Yeah, the um, Mayweather-McGregor fight was like,
4: if you wanted to watch that and you didn't have cable, there was just links over Twitter, over every social media, Facebook, um, and people who don't know how to use computers really were just streaming HD HD streams of this pay-per-view because they could...
3: Yeah. There's also the, the whole thing that I think is just incredible is when people have the... I don't even know what to say it's not even just it's just like brazenness to just pretend that they're playing a video game and acting like they're streaming by putting themselves in front of like a green screen um, with the stream behind them and then looking like they're pretending to play a game. I saw that a couple times on, uh, on YouTube that just made me laugh wicked hard there's another one for the Super Bowl that I was watching that had uh, somebody had put the Madden like 2018 like title screen in between some of the commercial breaks. As if it was, like, a video game. Best uh, game ever.
2: <laughs> Dude, that's your hero right there. You got to love those guys.
3: <laughs> um, so, did you guys see the other article that um, I posted in the, the news thing about T-Mobile um, getting a $40 million fine for playing fake ringtones to hundreds of millions of calls over several years?
1: I don't know. I don't really understand what they're meaning by that. Like, are they saying that, like, when somebody went to call somebody and there really wasn't service, they just played ringtones like it was calling them? Yep.
3: To basically make Yeah, it happen, like I can actually explain that. Was up uh, and yeah. in, in active in, when when they weren't. Um, and apparently in, for, in 2014, the SEC had banned the practice of adding fake ringtones. And so T-Mobile had just been doing this for forever and now has to pay a settlement, which is just, I didn't know that was even illegal. And I didn't either. The fact that it is and the fact that they didn't care is also really funny, too. But I
2: had for telecommunication laws from like 1938, it was like section 201b, and it pretty much had to to do along the lines of actually not like overcharging or being untruthful about the services provided. So yeah, Essentially, what what they were doing was like saying, like, "Oh, so instead of admitting that we suck, we'll give you a fake green tone, so and make like, you think
1: yeah. that you, they have service." Yeah, I could see how it could be illegal because it's basically trying to trick the users and other people into think T-Mobile has good coverage and shit. So
0: ah, uh, that's insanely unethical.
4: What about um, the aspect of um, a more sort of psychological, like psyop deal where? People have put their phone down and they might be cooking, they might be watching TV, they might be spending time with other people in real life and um, their phone rings. So now they're looking at their phone again, you know, getting uh, the, those usage fees up.
3: Yeah, I mean, yeah. it seems pretty dirty and, and unethical, but at the same time, it's also like, it, it seems like it's something that just happens so like beyond, like you wouldn't notice that happening. So it just seems like one of those things where it, I, I feel like I wouldn't really understand, or I mean, I wouldn't notice either way.
2: Yeah, no, He was a legal until I read it.
5: <laughs> now I, I think, honestly, to to give them a little credit, I guess that there are certain user experience designs that kind of give you a fake sense of something's happening uh, to get you to wait a little longer, and I, I think that was the general intent and design behind this is. Uh, maybe your call is taking a, a long way. Uh, if you're the caller, and it takes you know, 10 seconds for it to actually initiate a connection to start ringing, the illusion um, there is they they have it ring at the very beginning of that. So you think it's it's been ringing for a while, and in reality, in the background, it's just the connection trying to uh, happen. Yeah.
2: So it's kind of like the cell. It's pretty much a cell phone's equivalent to the spinny icon.
5: Mm-hmm. yeah yeah exactly but uh, oh man did anybody think of any uh user experience designs where they're uh using the psychology of something um to to make it seem like something's happening I'm, I'm oh, on, uh, taxes dude yeah, every
4: yeah. single download website ever it, like that's yeah yeah just look yeah. at our ads for like five seconds for no reason yeah yeah definitely
1: I
0: think for, um, I think when they invented IP phones, they had to uh, put like the fake, like, you know, humming noise, like the static noise in the background, because when people picked <laughs> yeah. up their phones, like, yeah, they didn't true, think that they were working, right? So they had to actually, like, play it, black, play it back.
5: Yep. Uh, TVs have uh, static on them now. A lot, of, a lot of weird things like that have been uh, added.
3: Is there a strange...
1: Well, oh. and then... There's also like um, that BMW i8 that they have. It's uh, 100% electric, but yeah. they, they oh, play. Yes. They, listen, they play engine noises through the speaker.
5: Yes, that <laughs> is a perfect <laughs> example. Actually, that's a great example. You what? That is really. Nice. Mean,
0: to be fair, like electric cars are really creepily silent. I mean, you could get run over by one because you can't fucking hear it coming up behind you.
4: I, I can really just imagine someone sitting yeah. in the front seat of their BMW I- i8 going,
3: brum, brum, brrum, brrum. <laughs>
1: yeah. "There's no engine <laughs> in the bitch, but the speakers are playing like a V8 engine noise." <laughs> I
3: wonder if you can customize different sounds for upcharges.
1: Yeah, somebody fucked around with it and did something. I can't remember what, but yeah, you can, they can hack into that and change that shit.
4: B. Uh. There was a, uh, the, the car hacking village at DEFCON last year. I walked in there for about 30 seconds, smelt all the nerds and left, but there was all the dashes of uh, different vehicles and uh, you could just rock up and, and start having a play. There was uh, CAN bus connectors and all kinds of stuff to, to do. Um, so, and I think it was the one of the early Teslas, they found like three Ubuntu machines running internally on like this... Uh, like, two-pair Ethernet, like, crazy network that was, like, built into the car's systems. It's weird. So I can't imagine that customization of that those types of systems would be too difficult. <laughs> it's not going to, like, you know, have a, a hash list of allowed-to-play MP3s or something, you yeah? know?
1: I posted a link to the um, BMW thing and topic form.
3: Hell yeah, I'll keep that.
1: Howl at Pedestrian.
3: Um, let's get on to the next topic, because we're... I feel like we're kind of being... We're running a little late on time here. Um, so the the article about the cops using a fingerprint from a WhatsApp photo to ID drug dealers. Did you guys see this?
1: Yes. I had yeah. always wondered if that was possible. I, I mean, I, I, whenever, like, I've noticed when I've taken pictures of myself, I can see the fingerprint lines. And I'm like, there has to be, I mean, dude, it's yeah. just kind of obvious that there has to be a way for them to do that.
3: Yeah. So apparently they had done this because somebody had taken pictures of a uh, of ecstasy in someone's hand, and um, so somebody had was you know posting a picture for sale, and they had just used I don't know what kind of software that would be, but some sort of technique to be able to do the the classic like CSI like sharpen like sharpen sort of technique yes. to get the uh, enhance get the uh, enhance sorry yeah. Um, to get someone's fingerprints, I think that that's, you know, with the fact that everybody's phone nowadays is, you know, very, has a lot of, uh, about capacity it's a very, it's very, very high density pictures. Um, I think that that kind of thing is going to be more inevitable for people getting implicated in things.
1: And what about like pictures of your eyes with like retina scanners and shit like that?
3: Yeah.
4: That's yeah. Like... I don't know. Oh, sure. do
1: all my photos.
4: I'm not sure how far we're along with uh retinal scan on the quality of cameras we have, but definitely fingerprints. Um have, like if you guys have ever like broken something and had to glue it and you get a bit of glue on your finger and like super glue and then you touch the thing that you've been gluing and now all of a sudden there's like this it's like almost a perfect fingerprint. That's kind of the way that you can build like they uh use um they use like fumes or whatever of, of an adhesive inside a closed mm-hmm. area in order to build the fingerprint like, when they're doing forensic stuff, I believe. Like, I, I'm not a forensic dude or anything, but that's my, my basic understanding.
1: Yeah, like, the fumes stick to the fingerprint.
4: Right, and I mean, I guess that's, if you took a photo of that, even on the, like, first layer, it's very clear. Um, it's more clear than your actual fingerprint, usually. because It's not in focus, but... Um, another time I noticed as well is when I'm doing, uh, like, IoT or, like, reversing stuff, and you've got shielding over, like, Wi-Fi or something, um, and that silver, uh, like that silver shielding, picket, like fingerprints are perfect on it. So whenever I go to take a photo of something I'm working on, I always like wipe across it because I'm like, oh, somebody's gonna, you know, upset <laughs> <offset> me.
5: <laughs> it was a, uh, it was a few years ago, but somebody used high res photos of, I think it was some German politician. It was Angela that... Merkel. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Posted
1: a link
2: to it in the topics. Yeah, I was about to say. There you go, perfect.
3: Yeah, it's pretty wild that people can do that.
5: Um, See, I've
2: taken many fingerprints before because I'm crazy and I carry a gun. So usually it's just all it is. is like a photo. Like modern fingerprinting technology is not even using like your ink and paper anymore. They're just taking a high-res image of your thumbprint. And then they're just kind of just using that to actually uh, store in a database. I'll actually look for it later. But there there's actually like
1: a lot of evidence, though, that like the whole fingerprint identity thing isn't like as legit as they make it out to be because there was an incident i cannot remember where this happened but there was a bomb that exploded somewhere and yeah it was
2: like in europe and they caught some dude over yeah, in the states they,
1: they, yeah they found like a partial print or a full print or whatever and they ran it through the system and it pinged back that dude in the united states and he had never left the country or never went over there and, like, had proof that he wasn't anywhere near that or related with that. And then there's been, like, a whole bunch of other, like, court cases where fingerprint shit had came back, and it pointed to someone else. Like, so there is a possibility that fingerprints aren't as unique
4: as they make them out to be. No, definitely not. With fingerprint analysis, I believe that it's... I, I want to say thirteen. I, that could be totally lying, but there is a there is a minimum required amount of points to match in order to call it a match. But it's not a hundred. It's not like a if you overlay them exactly, it doesn't have to match. It just has to be certain uh, key features and a certain amount of them that do match.
3: Cool. Hmm. Well, guys...
4: um, I think just on that. Uh, sorry, on the on the WhatsApp um, thing as well that in this case the fingerprint that was found was not of the people who were originally arrested and they did take their ink fingerprints um and then later found that it was like a a relative so they they did find the circle through whatsapp but they didn't directly find the suspect like first go kind of thing like it was still on the ground detective work taking fingerprints etc
5: all
3: right so we have another article here about an Android Trojan that's been spreading via DNS hijacking. So there's some people that have been either with malicious or just owned routers um, have been doing some DNS hijacking to make people download Trojan versions of Facebook and Chrome and then doing their dirty work from there. Did you guys see that? Yeah.
1: Um, but the weird thing about, like, they're acting like this is like something big and new this happened in december of 2016 mm-hmm. same thing the exact same thing
3: yeah i feel like this will happen more we were talking about more sort of um supply chain attacks and attacks on a much bigger level of people doing those sort of dns redirections, like they were doing in uh, i think it was like turkey and a couple other places where they were uh making people download trojan versions of things i think it's going to become a lot more commonplace though um in general just because people are you know wi-fi is very ubiquitous and people go into public places where there's free wi-fi inherently you're going to trust it and not think that the weird facebook or chrome updates that are just suddenly happening on their phone are legitimate even if they're on facebook.com or even google.com right well what about uh if you look at other network type
4: attacks bgp other like ospf whatever um and and go like, well, what if you took out like entire chunks of networks and just redirected them instead of, you know, singular DNS on someone's home router? What if you scaled it to the size of the internet? If you had the if you had the capability, um, so you know, the governments like, you know, have uh, that type of power, large telcos or whatever, or, or attackers in those large telcos, you could get a lot more reach with that same supply chain type attack.
3: Yeah, definitely. We were discussing this early in an earlier early podcast um, when there was a, an article about that. But I think that even on like, you know, it's definitely scary on like a, a giant level like that. But just the fact that there's you know people doing you know, evil twin attacks or other sort of things on Wi-Fi networks is just something people have to definitely be on the lookout for a lot more, especially while traveling. This the sense that said this is happening in Asia. Um. Does the app store, the official app store
4: on Android, the Play Store, does it use certificate pinning currently or no? I'm not
3: exactly that? sure. It's something I can look into, though. If anybody listening knows, you can um, throw that into the chat, too. But I do not know if they do that. Uh, but speaking of... Well, it's not even speaking of anything. <laughs> I was trying to think of something clever, but, yeah. The next article that we have um, is a white paper that someone did about um, the Power Hammer, exfiltrating data from air gap computers. Mm-hmm. So this one is kind of a, uh, kind of wild, but it's it almost, it just, again, it reminds me of, of just other things that are now in the hands of, of researchers that were once just part of the NSA toolset. So this is a pretty interesting
4: way to exfiltrate data. Um, I don't totally understand it. Uh, I'm not that much of a, of a electrical engineer. But um, I guess if you wanted to mitigate this, what kind of like so we're we're talking about the module, the AC modulation.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: So how how could you what mitigations if you were building a facility would you put in place besides having I guess you'd have to have like your, an entire substation dedicated to yourself.
3: Yeah, there's there's a whole so on. It's um trying to get.
4: Is there a, is there an easy mitigation? Is there a plug and play type uh, thing? MG, maybe. Like, I guess this is a question for you.
3: Yeah, this is something that's more of like so. This like the sort of tempest um, code or specification that people use to you know basically make it much more difficult for people to do something like this. Um, and it involves a bunch of different things that I'm. It's kind of above what I know about. Um, but I mean, this sort of, uh, exfiltration is, it happens because basically every time that you, you know, press a button or your, the state of your monitor changes or something happens on your network, there's always going to be a, a sort of electrical fingerprint of what is happening. And so the same thing with people exfiltrating data by reading the LEDs flashing on your router, um, you know, that sort of thing, it's, it's measuring that just on a different way. Um, but that's the kind of thing that people have thought about doing but it's it's difficult in a variety of reasons and i think that this paper just sort of spells out some of the practical ways that they've tried to actually do this exploitation
0: isn't this kind of like a vanek freaking which is like the reason why yeah. they have lead lined uh, they have lead lined computer rooms in the dod now
7: Exactly. It's why they have shielded cables everywhere in, in defense. And if you can ever see a cable at all, power or, or otherwise, it's considered a security fail.
4: Yeah, so I guess the, the vulnerability here is that your building must draw electricity. And um, at what point, like how far outside of the building is that? can
7: that be jacked? I think it's interesting how many of these um, air gap hopping research papers come out of the same universities in Israel, um, considering one of the first examples we ever saw, in theory anyway, of air gap hopping malware was, um, uh, what was it called? The attack against the Iran nuclear facilities that the US and Israel
5: worked on. Stuxnet. Stuxnet. Yeah.
7: So we've been seeing a lot of
5: research.
4: Yeah, the University of Tel Aviv is elite. Like they, they put out some really crazy papers, and that's what they put out. So, what don't they put out? Like, what, what else do they have?
0: Yo, yeah, they have like they... Right? they have all like they have all like the elite companies there. The Jews are getting ahead of us.
7: A lot of our security technologies that we we all take for granted uh, are based or come from from Israel, like checkpoint firewall and stuff, F five celebrate um speaking
3: of exfiltrating data through unconventional means nux you brought this up just now um let's talk about the people who stole a high roller database from a casino through a thermometer in the lobby fish tank
6: you got out of time why the fuck wasn't it isolated (laughs)
1: <laughs> because nobody fucking pays attention to any type of security shit and all this iot stuff is like because i honestly think that iot shit should have like a lot of regulations on it because if you look at like the last like three to four years a lot of like the major shit that's been going on like it goes back to a freaking iot device like especially with like the botnets and shit over like the last couple of years like mirai and all that kind of shit it all is based on IoT devices. And if there's no type of like regulation regulating like security protocols that they need to like, use and shit, it's just going to be a fucking wild west until that happens.
4: I feel like to become an IoT developer, you have to go buy an Arduino, like use Arduino IDE one time, instant. You, congratulations, you are qualified yeah. to work in IoT. Exactly. And that's <laughs> what fucks everything, is because it's... like... The, the, that the,
1: I don't know, I never saw, I don't know if anybody knows what company it was that that thermometer was, but it, I don't think that really you can blame the casino too much on that. I mean, obviously their IT people should have looked into that made sure that it was locked down and default passwords and all that shit were removed or changed and stuff. Really uh, segregated really
2: segregate different networks. You can't just put it, it on the same thing. I mean, Casino's here in Reno, I mean, they segregate the fuck out of all their stuff. I mean, it's like almost air-gapped for the most part.
5: The, uh, the problem with that, though, is, you know, say, say some of these big companies that you know the name of actually start to improve their IoT stuff. There's always going to be the Chinese uh, manufacturers who are just running these on razor-thin margins and kind of making either clones or... You know, pseudo knockoffs. They are always going to be lacking in security and as long as people buy that stuff, it's gonna be a great point of entry.
6: Definitely. I mean if they're both True. the same price, why wouldn't you buy the cheaper one? I think uh, it's about time that people start having a little bit more pride in brand recognition. Yep.
5: But so, I um... mean
1: with the with the Chinese thing and and them making like knockoffs to stuff for cheaper stuff that I I think that um there should be like some sort of a compliance and if they don't have if that organization that does the compliance doesn't certify them i think that companies should not be allowed to use them of course like you know normal everyday people could buy them and use them and shit but i think that there should be some sort of like a compliance that companies have to follow to make sure that their iot devices are secure
2: so this is going to get kind of like long complicated because essentially what we're asking for is like a uh Internet version of the FCC where they can actually regulate pretty much what goes and stays on the internet, and just a uh, devil's advocate that I can have some negative influences, saying like, "Oh, this guy has more money than me. I'm going to go ahead and streamline this," and then say, "Oh, no, this thing is banned because this thing sees it as a threat to their uh, to their business model." For example,
5: uh, how about how about a rating? It's not mm-hmm. mandatory, but there can be a certification you know, a grade that you effectively get from an organization and you get that stamp on your box and therefore consumers can make an educated decision, but there's no mandatory.
4: Yeah,
1: see, that's, like, that's, what, you know, that's more what I was
5: getting yeah. at. Yeah. So
4: with um, uh, uh, HSM's hardware security modules, um, if you buy a HSM, it will list what it is, you know, um, like what it's certified to for Certain encryption standards, it'll be like physically tamper-proof, um, all different things that it needs to be to be sold as a HSM and go into a secure environment. Um, and really, if you look at it, it's just a, a magic black box that does this singular operation, and that's really what most IoT devices are—they're like a magic box, plug in, whatever, and you forget about it, right? Mm. Um, I do have one one thermostat-related hacking incident that i heard of that was there's also quite funny which was um during a bug bounty on uh that company that makes that moba that everyone plays that pays out lots in bug bounties um they were hacked uh and the thermostat in their office was set to like something like you know 40 degrees celsius or whatever (laughs) and then the person who was doing it accidentally bricked the thermostat at 40 degrees and it just stayed that way overnight while no one was in the office. <laughs>
2: oh, God. <laughs> Please tell me they said, like, my voice is my passport before they entered. <laughs>
4: um, but, yeah, then the they actually paid out that bug bounty, I believe. So that's pretty funny.
3: Yeah, I think one of the things that we should probably do as a collective here is do a whole show about uh, security. Because I feel like a lot of the things that we've discussed, and even one of the people that we were trying to get as a special guest tonight... Um, have done quite a bit in the realm of IoT security and just have, you know, we kind of all share it in in a palming like, you know, like, what the hell is going on here kind of way, but this has a lot of, like, real, actual implications that a lot of people might not consider, because as you said, um, I forget who said it, about getting, just buying an Arduino, you know, getting some old libraries from, like, 2013 off of GitHub that haven't been tested, and pushing those kind of you're building applications around those kind of things. I mean, it's not just Arduino, but it could happen with you know all sorts of different code bases for ARM and other things as well, as well as even um, older firmwares that are have been deprecated um, such as the S8 uh, line thing, MG that we were working on before. So with all that, like, I think that we need to like, maybe have more of a discussion about that so people can actually harken back to this because I mean, you have a lot of cool ideas it's just it's hard to get that information out to people especially when you're trying to like actually tell a vendor like hey something's fucked up you got to uh you know actually listen to what i'm saying you know yeah definitely um and yeah if
4: you buy an off the shelf sort of uh off brands um chip like who knows what's what firmware it's running you don't You just sort of guess
0: yeah uh, the scary thing is, is like you know most of like the uh, the consumer security cameras are all owned by like a couple of Chinese companies, right? And they produce like maybe like thirty to fifty percent of what everyone's using in their own home, and they're all and they all have shit security. Right? I think it's like one company is called like Dahua or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And they own like quite a lot of the market share. Like even yes. like um even like uh, I think governments like governments are using their their shit right which is
2: not secure at all nope you're right they are
4: i was looking at um a video platform recently the ubiquity i have looked at ubiquity stuff before and the the management interface for that seems to be an early fork of the network management interface um which has been found to be quite vulnerable um and they they don't seem to share a common code base but they were forked from a common code base and like i haven't really looked into it but at first glance it's pretty scary Could so if, yeah go do some research and get some bug bounties from them on uh on hackathon anyone who's listening uh the make next one here huh make money go on. <laughs>
3: um the next thing we have here actually uh, solid you shared this was ovh released a new test for specter and meltdown um which we encourage all of you to get tested do it. Just do Get it.
8: Tested. Get tested.
3: Safe. All right. So we got we got one more news article that we have the fail the week, and then we're going to move on to our topic here. So the next news article that we have, um, we were just reading about, was the teen in Nova Scotia that was charged with breaching government files um, by basically just going to a freedom of information based website in Nova Scotia and was rated for downloading files that he thought were public.
1: yeah basically on that like because i mean the kid didn't really like you know do any type of hacking like at all i mean he basically just did like uh increasing a number and finding the next the next one so i really think it falls on uh the nova scotia government for not you know carrying that down more and also at at the same time i think what they're doing is and since it was you know some personal information on like a, a few thousand people there they, they just jumped the gun on needing a scapegoat. So they're like, oh, boom, it was this dude that did it. Let's go arrest him so it, it looks like we're getting on top of this and that it wasn't our fault. It was some kid hacker that did this. And I think that they should honestly be taking the blame for it because anybody could have done that.
3: Yeah, they they even the one, of the, one of the
1: articles I read even stated that how they found it out is one of the employees there accidentally did the same thing.
3: Yeah, that's pretty wild. I mean, I think that it's just, it's kind of just ridiculous that they're coming down really hard on just somebody who's just 19. You know, this is a pretty serious crime of breaching government documents. And And, and
6: Hmm?
3: another thing is, is
1: that he even, he never tried to hide himself. If he would have had malicious intent, he would have been trying to hide himself. Because he knows enough about computers to know about IP addresses and all that shit. Because apparently he has like 36 terabytes of websites that he's done this to before. Mm-hmm. Because he wants he wants to archive the internet. Yeah. So, and it he obviously knows a little bit about this shit. And he wrote a script that actually was downloading all this crap. So, if this kid did have any malicious intent, he would have went through some steps to try and hide his shit. Not just doing it straight from home IP.
7: Yeah, absolutely. He I hope in his 30 terabytes of archived 4chan data i hope they don't go through that too closely or he might well, really I will, right? yeah he might
1: get in trouble for some shit if they do go through that
4: so um what so his actual actions they took because we spoke a lot about responsibility last week disclosure the week before what was his like what did he actually do to disclose this did he just Email and be like, "Hey, there's a problem," or was he? No, like...
1: he didn't even think he didn't even think there was a problem. He thought that it was all public information and that they were putting it out there. He had no clue that there was stuff that was, you know, sensitive or personal. He thought that they put this website up for people to go and download public records. And, and
4: go did on. he make that information available or to? No, did he notify no. anyone?
1: No, it was for him. He was he was trying to get information on some teacher something thing that's going on in Canada. If and if what
6: Cambridge Cambridge International was doing is isn't illegal, then what he was doing isn't illegal.
4: Yeah, and I think exactly. this is a case where um, our ODA friend who was on a couple of weeks ago would say that this is ridiculous. Throw it out.
1: Yeah. No, like and, and there's a lot of law people in Canada and some of the articles that I read where they're like, This is stupid. This kid he did not do anything to hack it. He it was it looked like it was public information. He just wanted it for his own records. He never went and, you know, posted it anywhere or said, Oh look, I breached this, here's this database. He never did that. He wanted the information personally for
4: himself. Yeah, and I think um it's again, all about, like we've mentioned before about intent. what was his intent and his intent was non malicious. So.
1: Exactly. And that I think, I think the Canadian law is written where in order for it to be illegal, they have to prove malicious intent.
0: Yeah. They're probably going to throw this out. I mean, you literally could have done it by accident, right?
1: Exactly. They, they even said that an employee of their own did it by accident. So why aren't they charging that employee?
4: Um, so faith the case the similar case in australia we spoke about which was the insurance company or whatever um we talked about it uh, before the show was uh it was basically again incrementing an id getting information on somebody um somebody else's account while you were logged into your own session um that person was a i think contacted by the police but i think it was th- that was thrown out if i'm not mistaken
7: Yeah, we're very lucky here that we had, um, because we've got such a tight infosec community and we're friends with all the journalists and stuff that would be writing about such a thing, that the the whole infosec community came behind um, that guy, Patrick, when it happened and said, this guy is harmless. He's doing you guys a favor. How dare you send the cops to his house? This is ridiculous. And uh, the media followed our our line of thinking. um, And even the, the federal police chimed in and said, yeah, this is stupid. Um, this company's obviously been embarrassed by this and they're, they're trying to take some kind of vengeance. And we haven't seen another case like that ever since. Uh, uh the media actually sided with the hacking community and said security researchers that, that are helping expose data leaks like this should never be targeted in this way. That's just stupid. And we haven't had a problem ever since. Um, yeah. in this case, it seems a little bit different because this guy isn't a security researcher. And you can see from the tone of the, of the article that he's actually a little bit concerned. They don't want their name released to the public. He's worried about what, what's my career going to be like? Will I get a yeah. job if this is on my record? I, ironically, I mean, if I was him, I would totally be putting my name out there and, and getting in as much media as possible to guarantee my future as a, as a white hat security professional.
4: Yeah, he's exactly. going to go
7: from being a kid to, like, six
4: figures overnight if, you know, he plays it right. Let's yeah, he could works. play it. Exactly.
7: Absolutely, for sure. That's what yeah. he should be doing. I mean, I understand being a little bit afraid when when you've had 15 cops in your house out of nowhere. But uh, if he plays this correctly and, and he wants to get into this field, this is a pretty good thing to have on his um on his resume.
1: And a- another thing, how they actually, like, went about the raid was, like, really fucked up because the his little brother was walking to school and the cops like pulled up next to him and fucking put him in handcuffs and brought him back to his house and they put the a little girl in handcuffs and they brought her out to the car and were questioning her and stuff and so like now his little brothers and sisters are sitting there going are, are doing the exact same thing that he's saying like can we get jobs and since we got arrested like these little kids they don't understand it and they're not comprehending it these little kids thought they were arrested because they were put in handcuffs. Like how they went. I guess about. they got a little
7: excited. They might have. They might have thought they found the hacker known as Four Chan finally. Probably. And they threw all their resources at.
4: <laughs> yes, we
7: got him. We got him,
4: boys. Well done. <laughs> bees on me. He's lost weight.
3: Uh, so let's go to the fail of the week. Um, this is uh, suggested by Jada Packet Smith here. Russia bans 1.8 million <laughs> Amazon and Google IPs in an attempt to block Telegram. Yeah, they failed. They failed like crazy. All so,
1: I uh, say is the Chinese did it better. Because there's still there's still people. Um, I saw somebody tweet that they went through a Russian VPN and were still able to access it.
4: I saw some people tweeting that they were still able to access it on the open internet. Yep. Um and the numbers were quite interesting of how many IPs were blocked. Um,
1: like two million.
4: Yeah, about <laughs> one point eight million. And they were they were slash fifteens as well. I did a quick quiz lookup, I pasted it into um, the topics channel, I think, earlier. And um, just looking at the IP allocation, um, one of the blocks allocated to Amazon is like a slash eleven, but Russia chose to ban a slash fifteen. Like it does, and it just didn't make any sense, like, where the correlation was. Like, did they, you know, because obviously Telegram are aware of um, things like domain fronting and using CDNs and forcing their traffic to be indistinguishable from regular traffic. And does this just show that the FSB just missed this whole part, this whole technique, or?
0: Well, the FSB is pretty famously retarded anyways. I mean, yeah, they... just look at how fucking Gucci for 2.0 was exposed.
4: Oh, classic. His webcam in the office in Moscow.
1: <laughs> and apparently he logged into Twitter from a Moscow IP. Yeah,
0: because yes. he didn't have his VPN on. Like, how fucking retarded do you have to be to not, to not even have, like, a kill switch, right?
1: But also, uh, can we not rule out the fact that maybe that it wasn't, that he wasn't Russian and that that was just a disinformation campaign, that he spoofed an IP and logged in to Twitter on purpose like that, to to have a disinformation campaign
4: No, I yeah. think all the evidence was pretty clear-cut that he was just an idiot but, um, back to uh, back to Telegram um, have you guys all deleted your accounts yet? Have you got uh, any, any I've never
1: had a Telegram account, so Oh
4: yeah, you may need
1: a to...
2: I still so got I'm, one um, various circles, so I'm I'm stuck with one.
7: What's up? Uh, so this comes from the FSB tried to strong arm Telegram into handing over encryption keys so they could intercept messages, right? So does this set a precedent where Russia bans signal, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, <laughs> Line, Wire, all of these things? That's what I was wondering, is why they were targeting
1: Telegram, because hasn't there been, in the last, like, year or two, a few, like, issues um, and vulnerabilities reported with Telegram that people were able to, like, pull information out of it and shit, when there hasn't been anything like that for Signal? So why would they go after the weak one and ignore the strong one? Because Telegram
0: is used a lot more than Signal in Russia. Uh,
7: Telegram is actually Russian. It's a it's a Russian developer. Yes, is my understanding.
1: Oh, okay, that makes more sense.
7: And uh, a lot of the um a lot of the crypto uh, groups, the pump and dump groups, and the IC- even the official ICO chats and coin developers and stuff are using Telegram. And a lot of those scams come in and out of Russia. So it's kind of the Bitcoin community and the crypto community are a little bit uh, confused as well, because on one hand Russia is a big supporter of crypto, on the other hand they they shut down. Things left and right, so we don't really know.
4: Yeah, I think um that, that if you look at uh, Telegram's history, I believe it's actually pretty clean. um They were offering quite a sum of money for anyone who could find significant bugs in it, and it was. Um, it, I don't think they've pay, had to pay out yet. So,
0: I mean, yeah, That's there are worse memory. companies. Like Wicker, Wicker is pretty shady. Um, what else?
8: Um, confide,
0: when... Confide, I think. Like, yeah, I think they're like not that good as well. But Telegram think, and Signal are by far like the better ones.
4: Well, Facebook uh, Lizard Man, computer slash Lizard Man, he um, was saying they couldn't see uh, the WhatsApp messages previously. But the way he answered it, that Faith was, was talking about earlier as well, um, he, the way he answered that question was, was funny, but it also makes kind of sense because we've seen in the past where while WhatsApp are using, like they've licensed signals encryption algorithms for end-to-end encryption, they were not doing things like encrypting backups. So could, you know, like <laughs> this is a massive fail right there and automatically downloading content to um, your storage and, and things like that, just b- even before you view it um, by default, that's kind of how WhatsApp works. So even though it might be end-to-end encrypted, you're still like letting it out. Um, not to mention that, a lot of these apps or all of these apps, the renderer is the app. So that's post encryption, you know, so decryption and rendering is still in the hands of of whoever writes it.
6: Yeah, this could just
7: be an extension of the like Russia bans all VPNs and proxies and Tor and all that sort of stuff. Um, But if telegrams end to end and you can, you can share content over telegram um, that kind of makes VPNs a moot point um, because you can, transmit data in and out, videos, whatever, um, via Telegram. People can write bots, like proxy bots that work from Telegram. So you could fetch any web page or YouTube video or whatever that's blocked in Russia or in China, and you could use Telegram as a proxy. Um, Yeah, I've written uh, relay bots.
4: Yeah, I've written relay bots between Telegram and other services as well, just because some people don't use it, some people do. And the security level of those conversations are low. That's a good question. How How do do they they make money?
7: Telegram ICO. That's how you make money. What's it called? Gram coin? Yeah.
6: (laughs) All right. So,
3: Uh, if anybody, you have anything to add? (coughs) Sorry.
4: So, so what are the alternative? Like, what, what are the, like, what can we say are good things to look at? um, As opposed to Telegram, like what would, like I know that when we go to defcon we use signal because it's really expensive to make international sms while you're roaming that's pretty much you know the primary reason um, do you guys have any other preferences of m- things that anyone
7: listening should look at
0: messenger pigeons
7: uh <laughs> I not pigeon though, like not anything based on lib purple. That's a really bad idea. But wire and I line, agree. wire and line apps seem to be quite popular and good alternatives. Kick, Kik, they've got an ICO coming up as well. Has wire
0: been like audited before? No or idea. Is, is there shit like the open SIG...
5: source?
4: I believe wire was... uses the signal protocol. Yeah, it was designed to be secure, so it's meant to be, but I don't, I've never seen any proof of that. Um, we were talking as well just on this messenger thing that Skype used to have end-to-end encryption, um, and that was one of its selling points, if anyone remembers, before Microsoft totally brutalized it. Um, and it was proven that Microsoft were intercepting messages and it did not have end-to-end encryption when a, uh, one researcher sent a link to himself so, he made a specific link, made two Skype accounts, sent it to himself, and the uh, his Apache logs showed a Microsoft bot hitting it. Um, and you'll find that's the same with, like, Facebook. Like, if you embed any content, if you send a link to someone, it's a Facebook bot that hits it and retrieves it. Um, yeah, uh, do iMessage does that. Yeah, iMessage. I so, yeah. iMessage iMessage is interesting. We didn't mention that before. So the, the keys to iMessage, the FBI, was it the FBI that wanted the keys to iMessage previously? China.
5: I, I think yeah, it was, it was an FBI incident.
1: Yeah, the shooter. The Bernardino shooter. Yep. Yeah, I
5: think that's yeah. what, what it was.
4: And what was the outcome? Like what, how did it go to compare?
5: I believe Apple basically uh, couldn't hand over the keys. Right? They just couldn't uh, re- technically do it.
7: No, and then they went and purchased the zero day from like Azimuth or um Celebrite or whatever. Shout out to your boy Duke, yeah. Let's not, uh, and J Duck and Zerodian. Uh, but let's not talk about that.
3: <laughs> all right, hey, how about we get into the uh interview that we had with Joseph Cox? So, all right, what I'm gonna do is so MG and I interviewed Joseph Cox from Vice Motherboard to talk about tech literacy and media literacy and the relationship between hackers and the media. And so what we're going to do is just kind of duck out for a little bit and just listen in um, through Twitch on this actual interview, and uh, then we can just respond to it afterwards. So if you guys have any questions about this or any further points to make, just throw them into uh, the Twitch chat, and otherwise we'll be chilling listening
5: it's uh it's 30 minutes if you're uh wondering
3: about like yeah I about that too it is 30 minutes long um Yo, where can I find a link to that the twitch it's twitch.tv forward slash hard chat I'll put that in the general
6: channel hey, thanks I got it
3: cool alright so we will be back mm. Hi Joseph, welcome to the Thug Crowd podcast. Thank you for joining us this evening.
8: No, no worries. Thanks for having me on.
3: And so we're here with Joseph Cox and MG to talk about tech literacy. Would you like to explain a little bit about yourself and why you wanted to come and talk to us?
8: Yeah, sure. So I'm a cybersecurity journalist for Motherboard, which is like the technology and science section of Vice. Cover hackers digital crime, the surveillance industry, all of the sort of normal stuff. Uh, But more recently, like as a side project, I've been looking at media literacy, which is a stupid term because it comes off as really patronizing, but it's basically how can we bridge the gap between what people understand that journalism is and what we actually do like in the same sort of way that people may misunderstand what hackers or security researchers do, just applying that to journalism basically.
3: Well, that's a really interesting subject that we've we've had a lot of uh, conversation about in how the media approaches a lot of different stories that we see mm. recently. And so we thought it'd be really awesome mm. to just get your take about what you think about all this. So I have a couple of questions that are sort of related to the the tech journalism side in relation to InfoSec. And then we have some other questions yeah. just relating to journalism as a whole. What are some of the biggest challenges that you face as a journalist covering technology, particularly InfoSec?
8: One of the biggest is going to be deciding what level of detail you need to go into because it's gonna really depend on like the story itself and your audience. And I've worked for like Wired, um, Beast, which is like a political, publication, and as I mentioned now, Motherboard, they have really different audiences. Um, Like the political one is obviously going to be more mainstream. Motherboard's kind of in between. And why is like general consumer tech? So you like deciding what to include, what to omit, that's always going to be a bit of a challenge. And then, of course, when you approach like a hacker or security researcher, trying to line up. Their expectations, with what you're actually going to do, that's really going to change all the time as well. depending on who, uh, depending on who you're writing for. So that's definitely one of the main challenges, lining up everyone's expectations, basically, audiences and sources.
3: Yeah, no, that's a really big thing that we've we've seen. You know, with with as far as things being seen to be dumbed down or not explained properly, and then it leads to other you know misinformation that gets propagated through people in their daily conversation what are some of the, the the biggest failings or problems that you see with how the media reports on cybersecurity
8: i guess that sometimes journalists can assume that people know why they're doing what they're doing and they're not particularly transparent About the reasonings behind it. Um, I'll try to just think of a hypothetical example. Let's say that a journalist is covering a data breach and then they don't include um, specifics about the hashing of the passwords or something like that. Something that would be really interesting to a security researcher, but maybe the journalist didn't include that because they didn't want to give extra information or perhaps they didn't know. But it's not clear from the article itself uh, and then, as you say, I mean, if there isn't if there's a lack of detail, info, like Twitter, especially, is going to probably jump on and say, oh, what the hell are you doing? This is a shit article. You're fucking missing all this crucial information. And mm-hmm. sometimes the journalists may have sucked up. Well, that happens a lot as well. But also, there may have been something behind the scenes which wasn't properly translated. So, journalists should probably do a better job of saying, hey, we made this editorial decision for XYZ. And, like, we're pretty bad at that, generally. I
5: was kind of wanting to ask about the flip of that, you know, what what are the common issues you see, uh, researchers or just really anybody in tech or, you know, in, infosec, what mistakes are they making and misconceptions do they have that pertain to the journalists um, that you see most common?
8: Yeah, I guess it's similar to that, that sort of something going on in the background point, that... Maybe security researchers will read an article and because a certain piece of information isn't in there, again, they will make the assumption that the journalist doesn't know this or mm-hmm. maybe the journalist has been misled or something like that. Again, that can happen, of course. But, often, okay. but, but basically, with a piece of journalism, what you're reading is like something that's been edited potentially by multiple editors and it's gone through a process and like that doesn't look anything like the original article in a lot of cases and there'll be a lot of like stuff in the background that won't be in the final piece in the same way that if you're like disclosing a vulnerability and you're doing a blog post about it you may not include all of the details depending on what stage of the disclosure process you're at you may withhold some stuff back it's kind of the same agenda okay Okay. interesting yeah is there a
5: good um, source for people to educate themselves and best practices uh, and just understanding the general flow of how journalism works,
8: that is really hard. Because honestly, I don't think so. I mean, there's all these big textbooks about media literacy, and as I said, I think that's a bit of a stupid term because it's almost very condescending to the person. It's like, yeah, oh, you don't know how to read. You don't have to read journalism. You must be a fucking idiot. When well, no, we fail because we haven't taught people. Um, yeah. I mean, there was there was one good article from uh, Steve Reagan from CSO, which was like explaining, hey, if you're a hacker, read this, and this is what you'll expect from a journalist. I and mean, if you're a journalist going to a hacking con, like, this is the flip side. So that was a good article. I can send you a link to that or something later. But no, that's the issue. Like, there is such a gap in knowledge here, and like a, like a gap between the inner workings of each community. like can be like a lot of confusion. So yeah, that's exactly the problem.
3: Okay. So I had a question that, that seemed to be sort of a bit more broad, but it's something that I think is, is being able to talk to you as a as well-established as journalist would be something I think um, interesting for our listeners. So how do you think that the disparities in having a lot of different knowledge sources affect our national discourse? Because we have a lot of really well-respected and have uh, outlets that have a lot of process and put a lot of thought into their pieces. And then we have a lot of things that are just churning out sort of impulsive stuff, but it's all being seen in the same lens of, you know, off your computer screen or off your smartphone. And so I wanted to get your take Mm -hmm. on how that affects how people approach journalists now and how journalists approach subjects and stories.
8: Yeah. So, I mean, originally, obviously, journalism was handled by gatekeepers. I mean, I'm talking about pre-internet, pre-internet age, right, when it's just on the print. Not, people don't have the facilities to print their own newspaper because it's really fucking expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's only handled by a certain number of companies with employees and budgets and all that sort of thing. Obviously, the internet comes around and not suddenly, but eventually anyone can have a voice like in the absolutely incredible way that you can just go and you start blogging or you start tweeting later on or whatever and that has really brought up the idea of hey you don't have to like work for the fucking Wall Street Journal or whatever or be like some legacy media to actually have a voice and to actually get your voice heard and that's a fantastic thing but then I think what we've seen recently with you know the, the Russian social media manipulation and various other stories, like a lot of stuff going on in Myanmar with Facebook and censoring speech there, there is a flip side. And when everyone has a voice, it can be very congested, there can be a lot of noise, and I'm just at this journalism conference at the moment, mm-hmm. and there is a shift going where, okay, everyone has a voice, but maybe some should be prioritized over others. They're not in a general way, because of course that would be like fascism, but more, um, hey, if, if I'm on Facebook and I see a post from the New York Times or a post from a blogger talking about the same subject, generally speaking, and again, this is a huge generalization, generally speaking, the New York Times will maybe a better piece of journalism and maybe more informative. So there is a shift going on at the moment where we're moving back to maybe we should be more controlling of um, narratives to actually finally get back uh, to your question. What's the second part? Something about how that affects sources? Could you just repeat that?
3: Yeah, I just said, how do you think the disparities in knowledge sources affect the national discourse on important issues, like whether it be political issues or, I I also say more specifically, tech issues, because we, we do have a lot of reporting on things that are tech issues, specifically like privacy and data breach stuff, and there's a lot of different takes on it, and because there's so many different people buzzing about about what something actually means, it. I just wanted to see your take as you've seen you know, journalism go from more print media to now just very disparate sources, where anybody with a you know blog can post something and use Open Graph to game Facebook to make it look like they're a real actual news outlet. And so, um, yeah. I just wanted to see your sort of take on on how that affects how other people then approach journalism itself and and approach the media
8: yeah well i mean at the moment uh there is generally um a distrust towards media and journalists and that's maybe partly because they've screwed up in the past or whatever it may be but with this increase in voices as i mentioned there is It's just a swamp of noise. It can be around certain issues and then bringing it to tech journalism, especially when everyone is jumping on the Russia uh, media manipulation issue, for instance, which I think is very overblown generally. But everyone wants to get their voice heard. And you can end up being where people will make mistakes and you can't trust this outlet and you can't trust that outlet. And it's completely self-defeating in a way, when we're meant to be here to uh, facilitate trust and to build it with audiences, but sometimes when everybody's chasing story, you screw up and you end up um, sacrificing that trust in the end.
5: Kind of go back to that general theme of uh, you know flipping it around and trying to understand how press works and being educated. There's been a, you know a few stories out there where you see some some weird expectations like. People are expecting that you'll be able to preview and even supply edits, you know, editorial control as a source uh, before Mm. a new uh, article goes up or anything like that. I mean, for many of us, that seems ridiculous. But, I mean, clearly there's a gap if if that uh, belief is in place. Um, Mm. Do you have any thoughts around that?
8: Oh, yeah, totally. So, I mean, go off the premise originally that the point of journalism is to get information out there so people can make informed decisions. I mean you can argue about that point but that's the one I hold right and that's the premise on everything else uh, that I build upon. So let's say that a source asks to view a copy of an article beforehand. Now generally in journalism that seems very unethical because then that source may be able to exert certain pressures onto the author and say, oh, I don't like that, take that out, or that's wrong, and they may lie just because they don't like that particular bit. Now there, the journalist is prioritizing something over their ultimate objective, which again is to get that accurate information out so people can make informed decisions. That is the fundamental bit. And of course you have other obligations on top of that, such as source anonymity, Respecting the safety of sources if it's a particularly extreme case or whatever it may be, cultural sensitivities, redacting documents, etc. But they all boil down to the ultimate thing at the end. And when it comes to expectation, I mean, I'm not saying this as someone who was born with this knowledge. I only know this because I've screwed up. And like, I did make the mistake once of showing an article to a source and then my editor explained, What the fuck are you doing? You can't do that. It's really unethical for XYZ. And then you never do it ever again because you suddenly realise how important that is. Um, yeah. So if I'm, if I and other journalists are learning this through doing, we can't expect audiences to just magically, intrinsically know this same information as well. Definitely, definitely. Um, I guess you know you you hit on a few things there. You know,
5: source protection, etc. Uh, I got a few questions here about what a, a researcher, for instance, can do to both manage their expectations and keep themselves safe. So things like um, being off the record uh, or having an embargo in place, what are kind of the best practices around
8: successfully doing that? Yeah, so the best thing to remember is that if you talk to a journalist and there hasn't been the caveat of this is on background or off the record or some other sort of like label, if you talk to a journalist that is on the record and they can then quote it, they can publish it and they can attribute it to your name. Um, off the record obviously is, well no not obviously, sorry i take that but off the record is when it's not for publication at all. Background mm-hmm. generally is for when it's Someone may be able to use the information, but they won't attribute it to anyone, or they'll just attribute it very generally to, like, YouTube or Google or something. Uh, And then you'll have deep background, which is where they can use the information, but not attribute it to anything. Now, that is a load of really confusing terms, which even I get really confused about sometimes, because there are differences between U.S. and U.K., and then, again, the expectations of the security researcher or whoever it may be. So if you're a researcher and you don't want to have to worry about all of these Bizarre, different terms that seem to change every time you bring them up. The best thing yeah. to remember is just that if you speak, it's on the record. And then maybe yeah. when you're talking to a journalist, you will say, "Hey, can we talk off the record?" And that means I do not want my name published. I do not want this information published. Um, okay. So maybe even the source can like set the parameters of the conversation.
6: And then just the yeah. other thing
8: to bear in mind is that you can't have a co- you can't be talking and then say. This is now off the record, blah blah blah. For something to go off the record, both parties have to agree. Because if journalists were just, um, if a source just said, oh, this is off the record, and now we're back on the record, now we're off the record, without the journalists agreeing, then, and if the journalists went along with that, they wouldn't be presenting reality, right? They would be presenting like a nice, manufactured, plastic version of the quotes. Which is not what you said and it's not what actually happened in the conversation. So again it goes to saying as the journalist is there to get information to the public. And if the source is flippy flopping between these, the journalist is gonna print it because that's just if it, it's um well, it's counteracting to what the journalist is trying to do in the first place. That was a very yeah, way of answering your question, but yeah. No,
5: that 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 makes complete sense. And you know, just kind of sum it up, I would uh tell me if I'm wrong here, but basically all parties involved uh, in actively uh, discussing this in whatever venue it is has to uh, opt in to agree whether it's being off the record or embargo before further information is volunteered to be in scope of that, correct?
8: Yeah, opt-in is a really good way to phrase it, yeah.
5: Okay, cool. That definitely, I think, would be helpful for a lot of people. (laughs) Um, Let's go into, like, source protection there. Obviously, there's a lot of expectation about, you know, what uh, journalists are supposed to be doing to protect their sources. But what can the source do to protect themselves? Obviously, you know, here we're talking about a hacker and everything. But beyond that, what what can a source do to protect themselves?
8: Sure. So if you're a security researcher or a black or a gray hacker, a hacker and you're operating like with a pseudonym, Um, and you're communicating with a journalist, and you don't want your real name published, I mean, don't give them your real name. (laughs) It's really like quite... I mean, that sounds really simple, but obviously in the conversation, it may actually be quite hard to do. But if there is a piece of information that you really don't want published for whatever reason, and, yeah, that might be your real name, then you don't have to give that up. On the flip side, the journalist may say, well, look, I can't just print the claim of someone when it doesn't have their name, uh, in that case, maybe your quote isn't included, and maybe the story doesn't go ahead, but the source can still make that decision to protect that information if they want to.
5: Okay. And what about when that gets into crime territory, obviously, with things like the CFAA over here in the U.S., yeah. just about anything can be classified as a crime. And, you know, there's a huge gradient of severity of that. But just in the general umbrella of a potential crime— what does a researcher have to keep in mind when protecting themselves while discussing with journalists?
8: Yeah, so obviously as you say like CFA can be really overbroad and even stuff like accessing exposed database if you piss off the wrong company that may still come like you in the arse even if it's a no-off AWS instance or whatever it may be. So mm-hmm. just just bear in mind like if you, if you tell the journalist how you did something, and that method is legally dodgy, and if it's on the record, the journalist doesn't necessarily have to omit that information. Because on the flip side again, the, the journalist is there to protect the anonymity of their source and whatever it may be. But if I'm talking to a criminal, or if I'm talking to a hacker who's done like a source of Quasi-crime, one of these like borderline CFA cases. My obligation is to report what happened, is not to cover up for this guy's crime, even if it's a really crappy crime and even if our hacking laws are really stupid. You see what I mean? Yep. Yeah, it can put the journalists in a hard position because they still have to do that. I mean, I had an example, I'll keep it general. I had an example where a load of data came out from a dark website, just like a tall hidden service, and I'm including that information in the article and the researcher says, yes, I hacked that website. I have to say where this data came from. I have to say that this researcher hacked the website. I mean, if he provided another explanation or he phrased it differently, then it might have been something else, but I can't just not include that information because that would be a disservice to the reader because then they don't know where the hell the data come from.
3: Yeah. I feel like that's something that a lot of people don't really understand when talking to people is that, if you provide supplementary information for something that that is what contributes to the body of knowledge about what you're talking about. So if you are
6: mm. you know
3: not you know trying to protect yourself, giving that information, it's it's unethical for a to not include that into a story about something that
5: is important. Definitely.
8: Yeah, yeah. I mean kind of again that background as I said, like a lot of things go on the background which you don't see in the final product. And like, yeah, even for a piece we just did about iPhone um, cracking technology from Greaky, like that's law enforcement access thing. i spoke to a lot more, lot more people than are actually quoted in the piece. And a lot of people provided really good insight on like the cycle of uh, the, the hacking company will find vulnerability, they'll use it, Apple will patch it, and the cycle continues. And I've just written that paragraph as if it's coming from me. But, of course, that's standing on the shoulders of the people who are a lot more cleverer than I am. But I've managed to take their information and feed it in. So, yeah, you do have these people who are much further in the background. And it's up to them whether they want to divulge that information or not. But it certainly helps. So I've Probably. had
5: uh, an example where I didn't think about what happened with Embargo here. Uh, when you, as a researcher, you say, hey, um, even, even if you successfully get it under embargo, things can happen. So I'm, I'll, I'll wrap this up with a what's the best practice here. But here, here's my story is uh, give press uh, an embargoed bit of info about an unpatched vulnerability. It's a common thing that's happening, especially, you know, with, with all the coverage happening. Um, they take that information, they show pieces of it to the company who is vulnerable. They get statements from said company that is outside of embargo, and now they can run a story in advance. So, what is the general best practices from a research perspective of actually keeping the full data under embargo with uh, press who may be doing tricky things like that?
8: Yeah, this is really hard, and um, I'm just going to say that. Kind of what happened there is pretty dodgy, like skipping or like skirting embargoes is mm-hmm. like a real gray area for a journalist. Um, yeah. There was a, there was another example where I had an embargo just on the new announcements for WebAuthn, which is, you know, that API for using biometrics to log into web portals and that sort of thing, and then on a podcast, the host was speaking to a company who provided all the same details, but without the embargo. So in that case, I got screwed. because I was like, oh, what the hell? I thought I had like a really good piece all ready to go. So, I mean, in, in the instance that you described, I suppose the journalist did not break an embargo. Technically, they got the information, but it does feel mm-hmm. like it was like a win on the technicality. And yeah. I, I guess, like, so journalism is not a science, right? It's not exact. It is wishy-washy, and it's more like an art. Whereas some journalists who have done that, I personally would have felt a little bit uncomfortable doing that. And there will there'll be journalists yeah. on both sides of that. Like, there is not going to be a right or wrong answer. Um, Definitely. Like, definitively. Yeah. But, okay. that, yeah, I don't know if I can even answer it, because it's just such a tricky situation. It's really, really case by case. But rather okay. than answering it directly, I'll, I'll just highlight that, there are journalists who would agree and disagree with that. Definitely.
5: Definitely. Okay, that that makes sense. And I guess if the situation allows for it, would it is there a way, um, from a standard perspective or best practices, to include the company who is vulnerable in all the comms so that there's no surprise and they know exactly what was said, so they can't be tricked out of the embargo.
8: Um. Yeah, this is hard as well. I mean, you can have, like, embargoes across organizations and across researchers, so then almost everyone can agree to that. But then again, if the journalist goes to another company, which is technically outside the embargo, and then, for lack of a better word, tricks them into revealing the information, then they got the information. Um, Uh, Ah. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's really hard to answer because it is, As you say, technically fine, but a little bit sneaky.
5: Yeah. Yep. No, no. I mean, uh, it makes sense It's things I never thought about, and there's definitely the uh, ethical boundaries that are, you know, gray area there. And I mean, even as a hacker, you kind of appreciate a little bit of it because you're like, oh, fuck, that was clever. Nice. (laughs) That (laughs) was a fucking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, um, journalism, infosec. I think. There's a, there's a lot that, uh, they're not giving credit for. Uh, a lot of people go to journalists to help drive InfoSec, uh, issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, Panera's mm-hmm. probably a really good recent example, right? Like, the, the, the individual researcher didn't get any traction, and then the day they tag the press, uh, you know, eight months later, instant traction. Uh, so that's, that's yep. been an essential
8: thing. Um, I don't know if you have any specific comments on that. Yeah, yeah, I do. So, I mean, this wasn't just a podcast for me to come and moan about how everybody hates journalism and nobody gets us. So, the point is that there is a yeah. benefit to journalists yep. and to hackers, As you say, hackers, security researchers can't handle aside their own work, and if journalists think that's in the public interest, they will probably quite gladly go along with that. But also... Hackers, and this is more the ones who may converse with journalists over an extended period of time, rather than just doing one-off research projects, whatever it may be. Hackers and researchers can help, if they want, to get more accurate stories in the press, because maybe they go, I see a lot of crap going around in these tech journalism articles. Maybe if I help out, better information will get out. And, And that's why some hackers do speak to journalists. I mean, I'm not expecting anybody to do that because that's a load of work for free. But a lot of people mm-hmm. do that. And then on the flip side again, this better understanding between like InfoSec and journalists is obviously going to be better for the journalism and the journalists because then they can build better relationships, get better stories, get better insights, and ultimately just inform people better as well. So there is like obviously a mutual, mutually beneficial relationship there. But it's not going to be for everyone. And I still have no problem. We're going to CCC or Descon and people telling me to fuck off because I'm a journalist. I don't have a problem with that. I appreciate that <laughs> there's, there's going to always be divisors some people, and that's fine. You know what I mean? Definitely.
5: Definitely. No, that, that leads into that's something I was going to comment on as well, and kind of narrow, narrow perspective. But I, I said that uh, if you don't stunt hack your research, the press will do it for you. <laughs> um, and it's kind of you know, a bigger perspective of like you gotta to talk to press, you gotta walk them through and get them to explain exactly you know the technical boundaries. And yeah, they're gonna want something, you know, flashy. So go within your comfort level there and you know, allow them to get, get there in technical reality instead of just planting the the raw, unfiltered um text details of
8: this and then having press fill in the blanks.
5: Mm-hmm.
8: Yeah, exactly. Uh, an issue that some researchers may have is that they will assume the journalist sees the significance of the research, um, and like they'll lay out the tech details, and they may be absolutely fantastic, but sometimes they, the journalist may need a push in a certain direction to see why it actually matters. You know what I mean? Definitely.
5: Definitely. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Oh All right. I think that was the majority of my questions. You got anything else that's in here, you? Um, yeah, a couple of just little
3: little bits here. It was just uh, I yeah, guess one good. of the, the the bigger ones, kind of more broad too, is um, I guess do you have any suggestions for future journalists on covering issues in the future, given what we've already talked about here?
8: I guess, um, and that's a weird one to answer because I haven't been doing this for long. But I'm very I'm relatively young. I've only been doing this for like four years or. So. But if someone was going to get into journalism, I would probably say specialize, find a beat that you really like, and like dig really far into it, so much so that like you get really excited about the fucking nerdy shit that all the security researchers and hackers do, as in like, get try to get to the same level of passion about it as the experts, and then just, yeah, get really, really involved within it. Uh, even some infosec journalists now will take like you know, fairly basic hacking courses, but then they do that to further their understanding. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So just really getting involved in the beat is probably why I would tell most journalists.
3: That's an excellent suggestion. I do have one final question. Yeah. It's a community question from some, uh, or one of our podcast mm-hmm. regulars. This is from faith. He says, mm-hmm. I'd like to know why all the Bitcoin experts on CNBC and Bloomberg are 60 year old plus dinosaurs. <laughs>
8: <laughs> yeah, especially Bloomberg and yeah, like the fucking crypto Twitter handle and shit. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, I don't know the actual specifics behind that, but I guess there is a more general point that there is a there can be a huge diversity issue in journalism. It's male, it's white, it's heterosexual, um, and it's typically, at least in England, uh, where I'm from, it's going to be up class. As well, like you're not going to get many working class people in journalism like me, unfortunately. So the more general point is, yeah, there's a serious diversity issue in journalism, and we still need to tackle that. How about you? Any?
5: Does Joe have any um, follow-up comments, questions, and anything you wants to throw into this?
8: Um, not really. I mean, I actually have some notes in front of me, and I think we kind of covered it all, basically. Um, I mean, the yeah, yeah. questions were great. Re- really made me think about it. And like, this, this for me, is more than anything like an exercise. Like, as I said, I'm only just getting into this whole idea of talking more about journalism to security researchers. So yeah, this is really beneficial for me, just being able to like, say it out loud and actually address the questions that people have. So I really appreciate it. Awesome, man. That's uh, Likewise. Um, this is great. Um,
5: See, so I guess uh, I'll hand it to you to uh, do the closing. All right. Yeah. Well,
3: thank you very much for joining us on our humble podcast here. And um, is there any way for anybody to get in contact with you if they have any further questions or comments about um, tonight's broadcast?
8: Yeah. Sure. So my Twitter is at Joseph F Cox. J O S E P H S C O X, and that has like my signal, my wicker, maybe my ricochet. Um, but any of those channels are great yet. Yeah. And if anyone has any questions, always feel free to do.
3: All right. Well, thank you very much, Joseph, for joining us. And thanks to MG for also helping out with the questions. And uh, yeah, we'll
5: see you guys later.
4: and we're back and we can uh, continue the conversation
3: all right yep <laughs> i realized that i was on mute great um yeah no waiting for everybody to get back online
4: i'm back hey welcome back
3: so what do you guys think of that
4: pretty right. good pretty good. good
1: sexy music
5: it's kind of good. <laughs> uh, yeah, Who else would it be?
3: Um, Faith, did you hear that we asked your question?
7: Yeah, thanks for that. It was a good answer as well.
3: Yeah, no, it's it definitely... He brought up a lot of really interesting points, and I was kind of wondering if anybody had anything that they wanted to kind of branch out on. Because um, there's kind of a lot there as far as hackers in the media, how the media approaches infosec how how to actually approach journalists i think mg really hit on a lot of good points that a lot of people don't typically think of when they're excitedly trying to call up whoever is going to listen about their elite o-day that they're about to drop so um just on
4: that like i did drop and it wasn't an o-day i disclosed responsibly through a telco blah 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 and asked them if I could do a presentation about it at a, a small meetup. They agreed. Um, I went and did it, and, and a journalist approached me after, afterwards, who ironically works at this company now, in security. and moved from journal, journalism on InfoSec into security. And they approached me and asked if, if I'd mind um, giving, uh, letting them do an article about it and make some comments. I was like, yeah, sure. The next thing I knew, I was actually banned from being hired at that company. Um, oh damn so I mean that's just my personal experience but a lot of the things were reflected in exactly you know what what was said there Um, I did like the the mention on stunt hacking though that if you know if you do a stunt hack journalists will report it for you you know
5: (laughs) the the exact quote was uh, if if you don't stunt hack your own material uh, the press will do it for you (laughs) yeah very true.
3: Yeah, no, um, I think what was really important was he was just kind of saying the the way that that you approach journalists just as important as the way they approach you, you know? Because it's kind of yeah. like people kind of think that, oh, well, I have a story you supposed to me like I make the rules but ultimately journalists are trying to uncover the truth and, and give information to people who wouldn't normally have it and so we need to be aware of that when we are working with them because as I said, there's you know journalists rely on hackers and, and hackers rely on journalists, so it's it's really important to respect that relationship and to really understand what it actually means. But it's it's we've got kind of a rare look into what it actually means for somebody who does report this in a general, like on a regular basis. I think it's more like the wow, well, was that the Sorry. on the record
4: versus <laughs> on the on off the record uh type deal where you can't just say oh this is off the record now and switch back and forward because the journalists will just like ignore you it was quite interesting um especially when you tie into what he said about uh disclosing crimes is not the same as as protecting sources um so i think you know that's that's kind of the case and you say oh by the way off the record i did this crime but like we're talking about something totally different blah 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 and the next thing you know you might end up in a news article that get somewhere that you know gets a little bit too much attention on yourself
5: very
1: much uh, that's that's why i think you should just like practice general opsec with journalists and not give them your real handle or your real name use a throwaway
4: um so what do you guys say if, have you guys been approached previously by journalists at cons like
5: um, uh, me personally Uh, it's usually just over social media Uh, so that is the one downfall if you're if you want to keep everything perfectly containerized and you know isolate yourself the uh, rapport you build with uh, journalists uh, becomes much harder so you gotta kind of balance that out cool anybody Uh, else I think
7: I've been approached at cons, but it's normally by, um, by journalists I already know and kind of respect anyway. So there is yeah. a kind of a gentleman's agreement that we're we're pre-recording something and that we both get to decide on what actually is the final product. But in the example of, we weren't going to talk about this, but <laughs> um, the sexy cyborg lady. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I see an article before it goes to press and make the final edits.
5: Yeah, that's, that's cool. not how the
7: world works. That's 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 never worked like that. So it's a little crazy.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't. Another thing that I, I was trying to it's not bring up too hard is because the, the issue sort of died down now, and I didn't want to to reignite. But the the Buzzfeed article about Grindr being incorrect um is a classic yeah. example of you know where the journalists wrote this article and they didn't contact the technical people first. They wrote the article and then. Who they thought was the technical contact turned out to be somewhat. I think it was the, like the sys admin at BuzzFeed, not not the source of truth, which would, would be the security person at Grinder. Doesn't yeah, um, uh, wow. Doesn't
1: uh, Whitey Cracker work for Grinder Security? Yep.
4: Uh, yeah. Whitey Cracker is the head of security at Grinder. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was talking about. Yeah. So he he wasn't in that BuzzFeed article. He wasn't contacted, I believe to write the article and he did make some statements i don't know if he made statements in that article but he did make some online no he He made statements on twitter outside of
5: it yeah easy to get a hold of us the nbc article right like they did not talk to him
4: yeah and i think um if you follow it a little closer you'll actually find uh there's a a thread that includes not dan who i wish he was here because he's a (laughs) podcast superstar um there was a thread that included not dan uh dan tentler who's not dan and yep. um, a, a, where Dan Templer was saying a few things about, he'd, he'd read the headline
6: um,
4: yep. and he'd gone through and said, grind to this, grinder that. This, is, this shows up on Shodan. I see this, I see that. And it was no longer relevant data. Now, what happened from that was the spot, like this is the headline of NBC that they've gone and written, which is not entirely correct. Now, he, someone with um, credibility has gone and tweeted about the topic. And um, a conversation started between, you know, Whitey Cracker, not Dan, um, Dan Tentler, and a couple of other people. And then um, it came to the conclusion at the end of that conversation that, no, these things are correct. This is how it works, blah, 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 blah. Everybody's happy. But what happened as the result of social media, the way timelines work, is that yeah. after the fact that people were t- like retweeting mid conversation some of the incorrect statements from some of those like internet people that they yeah. follow so
5: it was the flashy part
4: a, yeah it was the, it was the it was the propagation of that misinformation um and had NBC had whoever gone and contacted the right people to begin with then maybe none of that would have happened and it wouldn't have blown up into such a
5: such a big thing and yeah, <laughs> yeah th- i think that specific issue was- uh, Dan Tentler had uh, done some showdown stuff, but it was uh, the immediate results. He had, you know, old data effectively, so it was no longer representative of the uh, infrastructure as it currently existed while the discussion happened.
4: Right. It, w- it was showing a whole bunch of Apache servers that um, have been since replaced with CDNs and stuff like that. So yeah,
5: it was quite di- quite different data. The press. <laughs> yeah i've actually um
4: so one of the quotes like uh in there was a news article where i was asked for a quote probably gonna dox myself now but um the the journalist wrote a quote for me and said is this okay and then i was like nah just write this and i wrote a really dumb sentence anyway that was and they they were like oh that's way better and put that in and you know i feel like it was important that i didn't let the journalist speak for me if they were going to quote me on something and put my name in there and luckily um I believe faith, and i were probably talking about one of the same people before that yeah that that was one guy who was um you could talk to and know that he wasn't just gonna write you off in a in some article
5: nice yeah, I think that
3: there's a lot of you know we with the especially with the, the Bitcoin question and um just kind of covering the. The fact that there's a lot of older people, the sort of the journalist class, I guess, is something that is has been, you know, pretty apparent with a lot of people that we see in mainstream media. But I think it's really cool that there's a lot of people like Joe and like other people that report on things that are more that have more of an ear to the ground. And you know, it is as much as Vice has had issues with certain things. I think that those kind of media outlets where they have people that are from different kinds of backgrounds and specialize in stuff is something that is really important to this kind of scene. Because just as, you know, InfoSec as a as a field has taken a bit to become well-respected, It it's something that is also coming up with journalism as well. So I think it's really important for people to be reporting on stuff. You know, if you guys have blogs, if you have your own communities or podcasts or whatever, it's awesome that you can do that and have the ability to do that. And a lot of people have a lot more power now than they, they could have had previously
5: yeah it's very true actually um you're making me wonder uh because the the connection between infosec press is uh pretty important a lot of this traction would not be happening without the press aspect and i'm trying to think back um has, has there ever been um just another thing in history where uh the industry itself becomes so reliant uh, on the, the arm of press to make forward movement?
7: Uh, war, I guess. All wars ever. <laughs> definitely.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, you know, private sector per se.
4: Uh, yeah, I'll, I'm mm. not too sure, but definitely anything that requires some sort of propaganda machine. I mean, if you're looking at We've talked about um, the the Russian influence on elections and and things like that.
6: Yeah,
4: it's all all media based. It's very um, true. So I think any you know there's a there's a lot of uh, that type of thing. If you can even go down to um, products products that you can you can buy on one eight hundred numbers. <laughs> I mean that entire industry is driven by like airtime. Yes. Um, and if if you watch a morning show, they might sell you three different products in like half an hour. like Ellen might give you a free one if you're nice enough
3: (laughs) so yeah um
7: we're kind of we're kind of lucky in the infosec sphere that they have to uh refer to experts i mean we have some we have some charlatans that manage to get their faces on television and stuff from time to time but generally, we come together as a group and, and troll the hell out of those people and their reputation gets shattered and they don't get called, called upon again. Um, that doesn't happen in other, in other fields like, say, fintech, which is why I asked that question for, for Joseph Cox. Um, you get these people on television that are, that are talking about Bitcoin and stuff. If you were to ask them, uh, they're apparently cryptocurrency experts, but if you were to ask them how public private key encryption works, they'd have absolutely no idea. Um, but in the imp- yeah, but, so in the, infose- in the infosec field, we get like we sorry um, to to talk over you there, but in the infosec field at least, we've got a few kind of champions that get their faces on TV that actually are respected. Even even like Mitnick's and stuff like that, you know. Um, yeah, they're okay. They're okay. You know, I'd rather have Kevin Mitnick on on television on, on mainstream news talking about a security issue. No, uh, some guy who's trying to flog um, snake oil pizza box SAM solutions.
4: Yeah, so I was just going to mention that um, there was a story uh, on like a really tabloidy uh, type news uh, show here about a a startup called Ozcoin, A U S C O I N E. Sorry, no E C O I N, and they um, they were basically selling bitcoin atms they were saying they were going to put 1200 into the apac region um and they wanted 80 million dollars in from private investors turns out that this even this tabloid like media thing uh totally just exposed it as a scam because nobody else was and regular you know people that don't know anything about bitcoin like ooh, invest like gonna make money You're gonna get rich overnight um and that was like you know
5: the guy has the number plates, like Mr. BTC, so all of a sudden he's an expert, you know? Um,
6: Sorry, go ahead.
4: So I was just going to say, Faith, you can probably take this one a little better than me anyway. Kinder mentioned Simon in uh, in the chat.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not going to touch that guy with a 10-foot Zumba pole. <laughs> Yeah, It'll I didn't
2: be... want to do it either. If you don't want to do it, I'll do it. It's funny.
7: No, I mean, it's the back to the question that was asked. Like, we have, um, in in the fintech, in, in the financial world, we've only got a few major news sources that everybody subscri- subscribes to, such as Bloomberg, CNBC, um, Wall Street Journal, AFR these people get paid lots of money to do hit pieces and, and pumps and and, well pumping and dumping is illegal, but you can see like an investment bank um, getting a a two or three page uh, coverage in the wall street journal about how the, the lithium market is a massive bubble and it's about to collapse and everybody should sell all their lithium stocks and then it becomes reality. And then later on that same investment hedge fund that paid for that, that, sponsorship to to do a hit piece on that particular financial product they then buy up all the lithium stocks when everybody else is selling um and that's that's quite literally market manipulation and that's that's how the media works that's they're in collusion with um with bankers and and big investment funds and they do that on the stock market they do it in the gold market they do it in the oil the futures markets the options markets the property market everything um, what they can't control right now is the crypto bucket. So this is kind of an outlier, and also infosec. Um, they rely on on us to decipher things for them because there's there's no lobby group. There's no infosec lobby group out there that's made out of made up of all the major infosec corporations who have an agenda to push a certain line of products.
4: Yet, arguably, there might be. In in regards to information security early information security i should say opsec uh not so much opsec but the information security and early fintech um somebody who knows history better than me would they like to cover a tldr of the the rothschilds during um the battle of waterloo yeah no that's
7: yeah no that's, that's that's an old conspiracy tale. I don't know how true it is, but the, the idea that uh, that the Rothschilds told everybody that uh, Napoleon had won the, the battle at Waterloo and that uh, France was going to take over the world and everything was going to hell and cause chaos and capitalized on that chaos when, when the opposite was actually true. Um, I don't really know how true that is. And most of the time when you find that kind of story being told it's by some crazy (laughs) white right nationalist kind of guy so yeah i mean
4: that's exactly why like i can see a wikipedia link to it here i don't i've seen it, it reported in various places again is it true or not but it's an interesting case if it was true um where information is what drove um the market there was little regulation around um the financial technology at the time and you know had there been more maybe it, you know if if it's true then um that was a a, probably something that would be quite illegal in this day and age
3: one of the things that i was i was thinking about that i was kind of alluding to a little bit was the whole idea of literacy of the journalists themselves in the regards to tech and so like just like we saw with the Um, the Panera Bread thing was was something that came to mind when I was talking to to Joseph was, so the people that were reporting, like Panera Bread put out statements saying that there's only like 10,000 or so people that were affected by the, by the public API thing. And the, you know, people like Fox News and other, other news outlets are running with that story. And then Brian Krebs came along and actually said, you know, it was actually something more like, you know, 30 million plus accounts um you know with information are actually exposed and so i feel like there's a lot of, of things like that with there's either hysteria about something that might not need to be people might not, need, be, might not need to be hysterical about or there are things that are just sort of slipped under the rug because people don't understand the technology behind it and i think that that's like a lot of companies might be trying to play to that like A lot like T-Mobile and other places where they say, oh, like, you know, we we know how to run our business and, you know, you don't know what the, you know, significance of this is to us and things like that. And I think that it's, it's really, it's, it's frustrating to see that, but I also like to see that places like Motherboard and Krebs and things that are actually really respected now and are becoming more respected, um, would actually give proper insight into issues. That aren't just some people reading a press release that may or may not be completely bullshit.
4: I think if you want to watch a really interesting motherboard security thing, go watch the uh, Sakawa boys uh, spammers from Ghana that is um, it's a good laugh and it's also quite quite interesting into something that
5: um, you've probably experienced yourself so.
3: Well, um, does anybody have any last words? Because we're actually about to be done till here.
7: Thank you again, you.
3: <laughs> no problem. Mm-hmm. Um, do you guys like the format of having um, a pre-recorded thing? I think I might start doing that more. If people want to join in some calls. Yeah, it yeah, works if we well.
4: Some, if we get some really cool people on, then uh, definitely, yeah.
3: Yeah, it's been it's been kind of tough because this is this time slot works for Australia and the West Coast, but everything else. Some people have been trying to come on have had some issues with just the time. Like somebody from Europe was trying to come on tonight actually talk about a, a an I O T bug, and it's realized it's like three thirty in the morning there. Um, so we're gonna definitely try to work with that, and if people are interested in coming to speak with us, um, until we have that line open um so yeah i guess uh, maybe we can call it a little bit find a person interview the
1: person put up the questions before you do it and let us contribute that way because i think you can handle an interview fairly well
3: <laughs> all right hey, well, <laughs> well <laughs> um
6: thank you very much uh, any other uh, questions from uh our chatters tonight Mm-hmm. Do we have any other questions from our chatters tonight?
3: Yeah, anybody have any last, uh, last words or questions here? Someone said this isn't hard chats, this is soft chats. Yeah, <laughs> um Yeah, speak now a hold your peace. Um, all right, yeah, so next week I think that we have a couple of people that we're trying to get together to come on, but we might end up doing something along the lines of IoT security because I think it's very important. So we have quite a few researchers here in our group and um, might be able to come together and discuss some more practical things rather than just a hard news stance. Oh, and uh, so Mentors in the chat says, is malware tech getting a fair shake with journalists and the InfoSec community? Just curious. Anybody have any words on that?
5: (laughs) I think. <laughs> uh, You're I think that. Hmm. I mean, uh, I I I haven't been keeping uh, tabs on the media coverage, so it's hard to say on that
8: one.
4: Yeah, I, haven't always, yeah, I think uh, from the infosec perspective, is I mean, you know, getting an okay rap. I don't know about the media, though.
7: Yeah. righty. It's fair that he uh, he gets trolled for the kitty stuff that he did on hack forums, and um, that's going to follow him around forever. And so it should. But you make fun of Yt cracker for doing the same stuff twenty years ago to this <laughs> day.
6: Salt uh, wears that on the sleeve. Who it cares?
2: It's a humbling experience. We all learn from it.
3: <laughs> oh hi, Jen.
4: Yeah. We're just lucky that uh, YouTube and whatever wasn't around when we were 12 years old and the videos stayed out there forever of us uh, doing bad karaoke.
3: (laughs) All right, well, tune in next week. We'll be back on Tuesday. Uh, Hit us up on Twitter, at ThugCrowd. You can go to ThugCrowd.com for more information about what we do. And if anybody has any questions, topics, concerns, hit us up how you can. Oh.
7: Goodbye right. bye. Thuggy, guys. Stay thuggy. Stay yeah. thuggy. <laughs> Thanks, everyone.